In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebratic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Well, thank you so much. And I'm aware that some people uh, have dropped in visiting. It's lovely to see you. Thank you for coming. So glad that you did. Uh, we have been working our way through the book of Acts. It will be helpful for you to have a Bible open in front of you. If you don't have access to a Bible, can you stick up your hand and um, someone will come around right now. Oh, thank you. Oh, no, Cam's doing it. Good on you, Narelle. Good on you. And uh, so that will be helpful for you. Whilst those are being handed out, let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can still meet. And Lord, we are aware of our fragility and we are aware that this world still needs you. Our loving and gracious God, please protect lives. Um, please, we pray that through this whole unsettling time, you would turn people to think about you and uh, their need for you and their need for eternal life. And so we ask, Lord, that you would use uh, this whole situation across the globe to turn people to you. And we pray that uh, this would be the hour when Christians stand up and exercise selfless love for the sake of others. And do not panic, do not give way to fear, uh, but confident of life with you, uh, we would be actually on the forefront of serving others and caring for them. So we pray this and pray that what's said today would be a reflection of your word to us and that you'd open our hearts and minds that we would fully take it in. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, conflict. Do you like it? No. Conflict is very rarely pleasant. It's something most of us try and avoid, but it happens, doesn't it? It happens, it's a normal part of life, a normal part of family life, a normal part of church family life. But today, we come to a doozy of a conflict. This is not just a tit for tat between two disagreeable people. This is a conflict which has all the potential to explode, but which is dealt with in a wonderful way, so wonderful, that it actually marks a major acceleration in the advancement of the gospel which means here is a conflict from which we can draw some very important lessons. Okay, where are we? We're in Acts chapter six. And if you've been here and been following this, you'll remember that the book of Acts is all about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though dead, having risen, he is overseeing the advancement of the gospel and the growth of the church. Now, Jesus loves the church. 
Um, he, he died for our sins. He rose to grant us life. He's ruling from the Father's side. He pours out his spirit on all who believe. And in the first century now, he's empowering his apostles to keep preaching and he's doing miracles. However, we would be remiss to kind of limit Jesus' involvement only to those times of mass conversions or miracles, you know, big supernatural observable moments, and not think that he wasn't there at the small moments as well. In the ordinary moments, like in this conflict, Jesus is also there, he's ruling and working uh, in his church to help get them through. And this is a massive comfort, isn't it? The story starts with the words, in those days, and we wonder, what days are those? Well, if we go back a verse, if you look to the end of chapter five, if you were here last week, we discover what those days refer to. They are the days when, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, the apostles never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. With the effect that, chapter six, verse one, the number of disciples was increasing. So there's a connection between the end of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six. The number of disciples has been increasing and this is the, has been the picture so far. It's not always the picture. We may live through a time when uh, the church doesn't grow and what's called for is steady perseverance at different times. And that's been true throughout history. Sometimes there've been great times of growth and sometimes not. But here the church is growing. Um, in chapter one, the church was 120. By the end of chapter two, when the Holy Spirit's poured out, it's now 3,000, with the Lord adding to their number daily those who are being saved. At the start of chapter four, it's now 5,000, and the apostles are preaching boldly. In chapter five, more and more men and women believe in the Lord and are added to their number. The apostles are preaching day after day in whatever forum they can. It's a massively healthy picture. Now, could a healthy church that's increasing in size face conflict? Yes, <laughs> because when there's growth, there's pressure. And I'm going to take us through the passage under the headings pressure, pleasure, which is both God's and ours, and then finish with three lessons. First, the pressure. Verse one describes a conflict that comes out of growth. There are complaints about the inequality in the distribution of food parcels to needy groups of widows. Widows are the most vulnerable section of society. The church is numbering in the thousands now. There's already a system of um, food distribution that's, that's um, emerged, but there's inequality in the way in which people are being cared for. And this conflict has all the ingredients of an explosive cocktail. You've got ethnicity, you've got gender, You've got claims of unfair treatment of society's most vulnerable. You've got issues of race inequality. Well, that sounds like the perfect storm for a conflict, doesn't it? It's not the first time that the church has faced pressure. In chapter four, Peter and John were arrested. In chapter five, there's the internal pressure of lying and deceit which if it wasn't dealt with, would have sowed the seeds for disunity and power plays. And then comes last week, the, most of chapter five, the external pressure of 
opposition and, and all the apostles are now arrested. Now in chapter six comes the internal pressure of conflict. Okay, so for this situation, you might imagine that the situation is highly charged, highly emotional. There are people who are representing these groups of aggrieved widows in competition, and they have a complaint. So here's the pressure. Now, how is it dealt with? Well, next comes the pleasure, God's pleasure first, and then the church's pleasure. If you look at verse two, you've heard how the 12 apostles gather everyone together and say it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That sounds elitist and snooty, as if waiting on tables is somehow beneath them, but we know that this cannot be what's, what's meant. How so? Because Jesus is the model for leadership and he has shown by laying down his life, true greatness is found in the one who serves and becomes lowly. And already these disciples, the apostles, sorry, have been flogged. Already they have been prepared to get their hands dirty in Jesus' name for the sake of the church. And besides all that, far from renouncing their responsibility for caring for uh, these widows, they take practical steps to make sure that they are cared for. In other words, they are responsible even if they're not at the front line of service delivery. So if they're not meaning to sound elitist, what do they mean? They mean that by attending to the needs of widows, if they did it, what that would mean is that they would slow down or stop in their ministry of the word. And they say, this wouldn't be right. Well, literally, it wouldn't be pleasing. And we then ask, well, it wouldn't be pleasing to whom? Well, obviously, it's not the widows, because presumably they would like it if the apostles served them. Uh, so it can't mean not pleasing to them. It has to mean it wouldn't be pleasing to God. The apostles knew it wasn't pleasing to God for them to neglect the ministry of the word of God. Someone has to do the preaching and teaching, and they are Jesus, uh, eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles. They lived with him for, for, for three years. They're witnesses of the resurrection. They were commissioned to do this job by Jesus himself. And so it's a priority, a priority even higher than the very noble, honourable task of serving the vulnerable. It's God's pleasure when his words are shared. Because that's how the church is growing. The apostles, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they're, they're never stopping teaching the word of God. And when we turn up to church on a Sunday, of course, we know that for something like this to have to happen, a hundred things have had to be put into place during the week to make our time worthwhile. There needs to be an army of people, a small army, who are working to put on uh, you know, church today. Wasn't it great to have the trumpet and the violin today? Thank you so much. The drums, whoa, that was exciting. Um, someone puts out the hand sanitizer. Someone, you know, sets up. There's a whole lot of work that goes on. But you'll know um, that we need someone, actually, to have done the hard work of also preparing the Bible <laughs> and preparing to teach. Um, because you'll know what it's like when you'll have gone to church and you've 
had a felt need in your life, we always have this need, but you'll have felt it. I need to hear the words of God. I need to hear God's voice today. And you'll have known what it's like when the person giving the talk either hasn't done the work or they've used the Bible as a launching pad to talk about something completely different for most of the time or they just regurgitate something that you've already heard before and they're just hobby horsing or it's so unclear you walk out that you're more malnourished than you were when you walked in. We need the word of God in our lives. We live on it. I need to hear God speaking into my life. I need his word. I need someone to explain it so that I'm prompted to have faith. And I need to be corrected because without the Bible's correction in my life, I'm, I lack focus. I drift. I get fuzzy in my judgments. I'm not living the right way. I need God, to speak into my life. I need to be reminded of the hope that I have. I need to be reminded that Jesus has died on the cross for my sins and he's risen from the dead. And I need to know how God is working in my life now. I need someone to explain the word of God to me. Without it, I drift at best and I die at worst. And it's pleasing to God when priority is given to feeding hungry souls with his word. It is not pleasing to God when the ministry of the word gets lost and swallowed up by other things. So if you are involved in teaching the word of God, if you're a kids church leader or you're a growth group leader or you're a young adults leader, you will know there are a zillion other things that you've got to think about when you're getting your group together, you'll have had the craft and you'll have had the supper and you know, uh, the shops are shut so can someone go down and get that? You know, there's lots of things you've got to pull together. Who's, uh, who's following up on that person who hasn't come? You know, have you, you know, what about them? They're not in good relationship. There's so many things to distract you but the thing you must do, the thing you cannot fail to do, you've got to do this because no one else will do it is you've got to give the time to prepare so that you're convicted and you know what difference the word of God makes and it's clear in your mind and you can drive it home. No one else is gonna do that if you're on point to teach. You've got to do it. And a thousand things will compete for your distraction but you've got to be clear. And this is God's pleasure. Now, in case you're thinking, well, that's all well and good ensuring people are spiritually fed, but there's still a group of hungry widows over here. Someone's got to look after them too. You're right. In verses three and six, three to six, the apostles propose a solution, which all the people are pleased with. This is the church's pleasure. Now, when I say it's the church's pleasure, and we've already talked about God's pleasure, I'm not saying that this isn't God's pleasure, right? <laughs> I'm just saying... Here is something that's also important. God has a heart for the needy. He cares for the widows. His son died for them. He's very much concerned for them. But here is a solution that is pleasing to the whole church as well. They're told to choose seven men from among them to whom this responsibility can be handed to. So the, the congregation are involved in electing people, choosing them. And the proposal pleases the whole group, so it's a popular decision. And the men are named and they're presented to the apostles who pray and lay their hands on them and they set them aside and they commission them for this task. 
Now, why are they named? Lots of pe- there's lots of people in the Bible, we don't always have their names. Uh, we never hear of most of these again. We do hear of Philip and Stephen, they're introduced to us, they're about to come up in the book of Acts. But the rest, why are they named? Well, when you look at the names carefully, we discover that none of them are Hebrew names, they are all Greek names. And we remember that the conflict is between those who support the Greek-speaking Jewish widows and those who, who support the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows. And the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. And all the people who are chosen to solve this situation, well, they have Greek-speaking names. Isn't that interesting? Of the two groups, those chosen to sort it out are mostly from one side, the Grecian side, the vulnerable side. Was that stupid? No, we'd assume that everyone who made the decision actually knew the men involved and that the whole group, we know, was pleased with this decision, the whole group. It was a very generous decision. Was it a mistake? Was it unwise not to have equal representation from both groups? Wasn't that laying a foundation for future conflict? Well, it would be if it wasn't for who they chose. Men known by all the church to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Which means they may belong to one group, but they will have their eyes on the well-being and welfare of everyone in the church, of all groups. And so on our leadership team, you know, you might be, have different people there who represent different groups who've got, who are involved in one ministry, but their job on the leadership team is to have concern for everyone in the whole church. They've got to sort of set aside their own um, interest group and really think about the whole. Well, it happened here, and it was a very responsible decision. The choosing of the seven then enabled the 12, the 12 apostles, to give themselves wholly to God's priorities without distraction. It wasn't that attending to the needs of the widows was unimportant. It was important. But the pressure felt by the apostles was to attend to physical feeding at the expense of spiritual feeding. But the apostles realized that by attending to the spiritual feeding, then the physical feeding would happen. Because notice God's priorities. Verse four, the apostles had to give their attention firstly to prayer and then to the ministry of the word. Literally, uh, when it says give their attention to, the word is to literally work hard despite the effort. The same word is used of the early disciples in Acts chapter one when they would come together to pray hard to do that work despite the effort. Or in Acts two, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching despite the effort. That devotion was hard work. Well, here the apostles would work hard in prayer and teaching the word of God despite the effort. So the first priority is for the teachers of the Bible to give themselves prayer. Now, are Trinity pastors in general famous for their humble, heart-searching, ardent prayer lives? Probably not. 
oh dear. This is a corrective, isn't it? And perhaps we'll say, well, prayer is something all of us can always do more of. True. And perhaps we'll say, well, God isn't heard because of many words. True. But there is a point, isn't there? Everyone who hears the Bible taught needs those who teach the Bible, and of course, I'm preaching mainly to myself at this point. You need me first to be someone who prays genuine, heartfelt prayers for myself, for my own understanding, for my own life to be transformed, and then, of course, for you. You need me to be a person of prayer. Because it's, why, why is this? Because it's not simply the case that people are converted through the persuasiveness of my words. People don't grow in maturity through my own cleverness. People don't come to repentance because I have a brilliant sermon illustration. All that happens because God does the work, not me. And the way God does the work is through, yes, through preaching, because the Holy Spirit inspired his words and they are a living word, and the Holy Spirit is at work in you, and he is helping me to be a clear channel of this living word applied in your life, and then it's the Holy Spirit, you see, who does the work of transforming people through the word of God that's preached. God does the work, and therefore, the people who teach must be people who pray, who don't rely on themselves, but rely on God. And this is not a duty, it's not a terrible task. This is a massive privilege, it always, and we have to remind ourselves about this in prayer, it is a massive privilege to come before our Heavenly Father, the creator of the universe, whom we know intimately, and who has... We have his favor and we have his attention and to lay our concerns before his feet and then to be able, having done that, to say, I'm confident now that the father who heard these prayers, because I can trust him, he, he will do his work. I've asked him, he will do it. Which means there's more value to you in one honest, heartfelt prayer from the preacher than in hours of prayerless preparation. It's been my experience um, that when I've prayed this sort of prayer beforehand, Lord, thank you for this life-giving word. I have nothing in myself to give, but you have everything, and everything that comes from your mouth is for life. You sustain us, so help me to be a clear vehicle for your word applied in people's lives so that you can do their work. When I pray that sort of prayer, that's when the sermon lands with a punch and lives are changed. When I don't, that's when we all go home thinking, oh, that was a good Sunday. The first priority is the work of prayer. The second priority is the word now, this should be completely obvious, but it's not the case that Adelaide is awash with churches whose regular diet is uh, you open the word of God, it's read out, and then the person up the front teaches their way through it. That should be the case, but it's just not. 
And it's not the case that books of the Bible are spoken through. It's more the case that it's topical. And uh, there's a place for that. But as your regular diet, it's not trusting God that his word is sufficient and that he will raise the topics that we need most attention. And uh, it's not trusting that God had, had wisdom in putting together the Bible, actually, for our regular diet. Even if we think that we're good at, um, oh, sorry, we go to a good church which you know, teaches the Bible, I can tell you there are many pressures upon someone like me in my role to take my eyes off the task of preparing the Word of God. So of course, you know, there's administration, there's advertising, there's music, there's forward planning, there's personal catch-ups. Okay, pause. I don't want you to go away thinking Chris doesn't want to catch up with me or if I ring him, I will be interrupting him from his important task, okay? So let me just put that caveat in. But I'm simply making the point that there are a myriad of other things that can happen during the week which are a very strong temptation not to put time into preparation. I've discovered Sundays roll around fairly regularly, you see and they require a fair bit of organisation, and then there's other stuff as well, right? You can't shirk your prep. I've been doing this for 20 years. It still takes me 20 hours to, to, do, to write a good 30-minute talk. If I want to go shorter, I have to put more time in. It takes time to dig deep in the Word of God to work out what God is really saying. It takes time to reflect on then how I must change myself. It takes time to discover the aha key discoveries that will unlock a passage so that you will see what God is saying. It takes time to think of all your questions that you will pose as you come to the passage fresh. It takes time to think of all the roadblocks to understanding and belief and how to teach through them. It takes time to work out what the absolutely necessary application is and what that possibly might look like for different people in the congregation. You can't do that in half an hour. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul says to his young protege, I love you, Timothy, but I tell you, as someone who's in charge of the church of Ephesus, you will stand before God and you will answer to him and he will judge you as someone in this role of teaching. And so therefore you must preach the word in season and out of season. You must do it even when people won't put up with sound doctrine and when they will just gather around themselves a great number of people to say what their itching ears want to hear. Your job is to teach the Bible. Now, God's pleasure is for the apostles not to neglect the ministry of the word. The church's pleasure is to appoint the seven to the task of organizing the care for the needy and to free the apostles, therefore, to attend to God's priorities for them, prayer, teaching. When the church organizes itself like that, we see God's power, verse seven. So, connecting word, so, the word of God spread. That's what we wanna see here. Uh, I was delighted just a couple of, um, two weeks ago, to see someone in the foyer arrange to meet, to read the Bible one-on-one -on -one with someone else who was new. Isn't that beautiful? We want that to happen more and more and more. Yourselves, 
saying, would you like to read the Bible with someone else? Wouldn't that be wonderful? With new people, people who have just walked in here, who have no idea really what it's all about. Um, that's great. That's the word of God continuing to increase and spread. The result of this happening in the early church is an exponential explosion in growth. In verse one, of course, the church is already growing. But by verse seven, it's different language. The number of disciples now is increasing rapidly. It's increasing with an increasing rate. Literally increased with multiplication. So there is faster growth now. But notice that also there is deep growth because a large number of temple priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't this wonderful? So they may have been the very ones who gave Jesus such a hard time. They have, may have been you know, the ones who had the, the apostles arrested. And yet now, because the word of God is increasing, a lot of them are becoming obedient to the faith. Isn't that remarkable? Deep change. Okay. That's Acts 6, 1 to 7. It seems to me there are three necessary applications which come from the three key groups, the widows, the seven, the 12. First of all, the widows. The point really from this is basic. There are people within our church who need looking after. And the church has a responsibility to do it. That's the point. Now, who were the widows in the first century? They are essentially uh, vulnerable because they're unable to be financially independent. Um, they couldn't own property. They couldn't own a business. And usually they were unemployable. They may do a little bit of handiwork on the side and sell it, or maybe they may get some employment if someone was kind, but that was rare. So they're extremely vulnerable. Okay, now in our situation, we have Centrelink, we have New Start Allowance, there's superannuation, there's income protection insurance, etc., etc., etc. But there are still people in Australia on the poverty line, and they are in our churches. There are people who are struggling to pay the rent, let alone pay for food or medical bills. And yet, we're not very good at talking about it. When I worked in the city for 16 years, there was a fund available uh, that gathering pastors could dip into if someone came to them saying, we can't pay the bills. Um, I think in the whole time I was there, there wasn't one congregational member who told me that they needed help, and yet I knew they did. I had to go round and organise help some other way on some occasions. There is shame in our society, isn't there, in talking about this need. However. The coronavirus is stepping up, right? Some of you are feeling insecure now about your jobs. Okay, maybe you have income protection insurance, that's good. You know, you've got things to bide you over. Not everyone is in a position to do that. We need just to acknowledge that. Okay, and I have to say that our own church, there's no budget line with caring for the needy. The leadership team actually are going to have to think through this one. What's the best approach? Um, at the very start, I just want to say, if any of you are in that situation, okay, please come and have a quiet word to myself, Mark, or someone on the leadership team. There is no shame. Okay? From this, we're saying, saying there are needy people in church, and the church has some obligation 
to help them. Does it have the whole obligation? No, 1 Timothy chapter five says the first responsibility for caring for the widows, that is the vulnerable needy, are the families of those people. And if you haven't provided for your relative and especially your immediate family, you've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so it's very clear, families first, look after your families, but some people are estranged from families. Some people don't have families or of a means to help. Okay, that's the widows. Next, the seven. There is a fundamental need for lay leadership in the church to take charge of practical matters. That's what it's saying, okay? We need godly lay leaders. The pastor can't do everything and must not be the sole decision maker for everything at church. And if you ask Narelle, she'll say, that's very wise. <laughs> okay, a healthy church has a strong layer of godly and wise people involved. And it's pleasing to God that this be in place. As well as the many teaching ministries in this church which have priority, of course, there's still admin, there's still promotions, there's still finance, there's still property, there's still music, there's still child safe monitoring and other things which I'm obviously forgotten, as well as caring for the sick and the needy. Now, perhaps you think Mark and I have been extremely clever to time the preaching of this particular passage to the day that nominations expire for election to the, for lay people to the uh, leadership team. We're not that clever. Uh, but the Lord, I'm sure, arranged this with knowing our particular needs in mind. We need good lay leadership. Thirdly, the 12. Obviously, we no longer have apostles, they're a fixed group, but we still need someone to give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. And this falls upon Mark and myself, chiefly. Um, from time to time, like when we just had to renew our passports, you, you have to click on, you know, or, or put a tick in what's your occupation, and they have these lists. Or, you know, you do surveys and they say occupation. Well, it's very difficult to know because if you're in a niche industry, <laughs> like mine, did you know in the SACE um, job list book, which is this thick, pastor isn't mentioned, you know, beekeeper is mentioned, <laughs> you know, but pastor is not there. Um, so it's very hard to know in those lists which you tick. What do you tick? Um, counselor, social worker, educator, small, small business administrator, um, envisioner, um, marketing, promotions, community development. What well, kind of the role does involve all of that, doesn't it? It can be quite confusing. It's a wonderful role, don't hear me wrong. But the point is, the pastor can't be everything, even though often we assume the pastor has to be. Um, Narelle knows I can't be everything. <laughs> um, and you know that too. That's why God gives us lay leaders. The other category is that... Um, of course, I must be a prayer as well as a teacher. Even if I tick teacher as the closest category, the, the word prayer never comes up on those lists. But that's a chief task that I must not forget. And it's not pleasing to God for distraction from the central task of teaching and, and of prayer, in my case. 
It is pleasing to God when those tasks are of first importance for the pastor, and it is pleasing to God when the church appoints other godly people to take charge of other areas. Now, before I finish, I just want to underline uh, an inappropriate application, which would be, I can never ring Chris or Mark because I would be a distraction to them from the main tasks of preaching and prayer. Why is that an inappropriate application? Because if we're going to pray well, we need to know what's going on in your lives, don't we? And if I'm gonna preach well, I'll need to know what's going on in your lives. As well as the fact that we like you. Okay, and we are tasked to be shepherds of the flock. So people matter, people matter. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this clear word, um, really about church organization and priorities. Um, thank you that you attend to the detail of what happens in our life together. And Lord, we pray that this church would reflect these priorities. Lord, we do pray for the needy and maybe people who aren't needy now but will be in a few months' time. Um, may they not suffer in silence, but please may the next few months be a time when this church shines as a group of people who pray hard and love hard for your glory. Amen.